Uh, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn once again to Matthew 25. The astute observer last week might have noticed that we made it through point one. Uh, I didn't say that we were quitting early, and I don't like to think of myself as a quitter, but that's what we did. We beelined to the gospel after point one. I saw the clock and had mercy on everyone and thought, you know, we could probably do another week here. So that's what we're going to do in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read verses 14 uh, through 30. I'll tell you the great danger whenever I do this is that I have to really resist the urge to re-preach the exact same thing and then look up once again and find myself in the exact same time predicament that I was the previous time. But I think after these uh, 11-ish years of preaching now, I'm self-aware enough to do better this time. But we will find out here in about 15 minutes. Uh, Let's read the story. Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 14 and following. This is Jesus speaking, and he's telling telling us a story of how we might think of the kingdom of heaven. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability." And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and he brought five other talents, saying, Lord, um, You delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides these. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Um, That's where we would all like to be. I compared this person to Pastor Steve last week. Uh, but that's where we would all like to be. The second guy follows in verse 22. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Very similar story. And then verse 24 Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him. Give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. Well, there it is. We have read the parable in the story. Last week we covered this. This is just a review slide. What is going on? Well, we have the situation. The master, uh, a rich guy, is going on a long trip. He has lots of possessions. Talents was a weight of money. So he leaves different amounts of money with different guys. Different amounts of money with different guys. Um, he gives one guy five, one guy two, one guy one. He says he gives according to their ability. So he knew these guys. He knew what they were capable of. The most capable, he gave five measures of money. The second most capable, two measures of money. And then the one who he had the least amount of confidence in his ability, he still gave him one measure of money to do well with. And the first two, they go and they carry on about their master's business. They do what their master would have done had he not gone on his trip. They buy, they sell, they trade, day-to-day business, whatever it is, it's not really relevant. Whatever you do for a living, they keep on doing what they're supposed to do. And when the master comes back from the long journey, they've made a profit because you don't get to be a wealthy guy unless you make a profit every once in a while. They've been carrying on the same business as the wealthy guy, and they've made a profit. They present the profit to the master, and he says, good job. Clearly, you've been working hard, carrying on like I wanted you to when I gave you something to manage. And then the third guy shows up, and he had a different strategy. See, he says, I was afraid to do a bad job, so I went and I took the measure of money you gave me, and I just buried it in a field. I didn't carry on like you've taught me to do. I didn't keep on like you normally do with your goods. I said, nah, to heck with all that. I'm just going to go hide it so that when he returns, he can have back exactly what he gave to me. And then he says, look, Lord, here is the money that you gave me, just as it was. And the master is unhappy. This is the performance and evaluation side of the parable. And his evaluation is you have done bad. You could have, even if you were afraid to go out and do the very things that you've done with me for this many years or months or whatever it was that I've been showing you how to do this job, even if you were too afraid to do that, you could have at least given it to other people like bankers to lend and sell and trade, So I could have gotten some kind of profit from all this time that I've been gone, but you didn't do that. Instead, you did the laziest thing possible. You did the thing that required the least management possible. You just buried it in the ground. See, if you give it to bankers, you at least got to check in on it from time to time. Yeah, how's it going with that money that I gave you? And they say, well, you know, we haven't made a lot, but here's a couple of percentage that we've made and we might do this. You know, you at least have to do some kind of work. But his approach left him with no work at all to do. He was free. And tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. He was free to live his life however he wanted. It must have been nice, right? I don't know what you'll do tomorrow, but I presume that most of us will wake up at some point in the day tomorrow and face the obligations before us. We will not be free to do whatever we want. We'll have somewhere to go, something to do, something to accomplish. That's part of the deal. That's not how this guy's been living, though, this whole time. He's been living, you know, the master goes away on his journey, and you know, it's like, man, we normally wake up at 6, and we are to the marketplace by 9, and we trade and do this. He wakes up, and you can just see him in his bed the day after the guy goes on his trip, and he's like, what do I want to do today? It's a clean slate. I have a free schedule. I mean, he's the master's servant, not to belabor the point. So we can presume that as the master's servant, all of his meals and his basic accommodations are all taken care of. You know, the master would have provided for those things like he would for all of the people who worked for him. So he's like, Psh, what do I do with my day? And he's been spending all of this time living however he wanted to, which is why he receives the verdict that he does. You wicked and lazy servant. And in practicality, if we're talking about a job, what happens to the young guy? He gets what? Fired. That's right. And that's what happens. Throw him out. 
We don't want we don't want these guys who aren't even going to try, throw them out. And yet, because Jesus is telling this story for us to think about the kingdom of heaven, then he adds that scary phrase in verse 30. It says, and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. That kind of sounds like being fired. But then he adds, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is the reminder at the end of the parable that Jesus is not actually telling us a story about how to be a good worker at your place of employment. He's actually telling us a story about how we should think about heaven and hell. And clearly, this person does not go to heaven. He is thrown into hell. A lot of people don't like to think that Jesus ever said a thing about hell. It is uncomfortable to consider that, but he did. He spoke of hell in a warning way over and over again, and this is certainly one part of it. Now, we made it through one point last week, and that point was Jesus will return. Jesus will return in the story. We're supposed to think about heaven this way. Jesus has gone away, and he will come back. When he comes back, there will be a judgment. Jesus will return. We are not living out our Christian lives simply trying to be good community members for the sake of being good community members. We're not trying to be good husbands, good wives, good mothers, good fathers, good daughters, good brothers, good sons, good sisters. We're not trying to do all that just for the sake of being good, as if to tell ourselves, well, you know, I've got this life, I might as well try to be good instead of try to be bad. That is not at all what the Christian faith is about. Many people live like that. They have their own sense of moral code, and they kind of fluctuate as desired, and it evolves, and as variables come into their lives and various challenges and obstacles, their morality, their sense of what they will and won't do kind of ebbs and flows their way through life. So that at the end they can look back at themselves and say, I've done a pretty good job, I don't have any regrets. But that is not Christianity. Christianity is living in an anticipation that the Lord Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he is going to judge. Now we went through this last week and now I am brushing up against that danger that I have of re-preaching the same sermon again. So I'm not going to get carried away, but I'm also not going to proof text all of this 10 or 15 times for you as I did last week. Jesus is coming back and when we think of heaven and hell, we should primarily begin there. Jesus, the king, has not left us with some sort of um, ambivalence as to whatever we do, but he's going to return. And like a master who returns to judge his servants, that is how he is going to return. And now we move on to point two. We'll see if we this is a four-week sermon or a two-week sermon. I'm I'm aiming for two. We'll see. I'm watching that clock, though. We'll see how we do. Okay, point number two. He has called his disciples to obey his commands. There's an expectation. See, we are disciples of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus. There is an expectation then that you are not, in your master's absence, going to live your life however you want to live it, but instead, you are going to follow the guidelines that he has laid out to the best of your ability. So that when he returns, he might find us obediently living the way he has commanded us to live. That's the idea here. Like in the parable, the master goes away. He leaves people to work on his behalf while he's gone. Each notice according to his own ability. And that's an important part. I like that part. Okay? Uh, This is a very New Testament Bible idea. We all have various gifts, various services, various ministries. They're not all the same. They're not all the same. I do not have to find a way to be as productive of a pastor or preacher as Charles Spurgeon was. If you don't know who that was, he's a very famous preacher. I don't have to do that. My job is not to start a church that gains thousands and thousands of people, and if somehow I I do less than that, then I've fallen short of what I'm supposed to. That's not my job. 
My job is, according to my ability, according to what I've been given to manage and steward in my life, to do the best that I can to live according to the master's instructions. That's my job. Whether I gain two talents, whether I gain five talents, or whether it's a minuscule percentage point that looks like it's only been left with bankers, that is my responsibility to be about his business. It's a bit like on a, on a team. Um, I don't know if you've ever been on a team before, but if you have a team, uh, it's not unusual to find someone on a team who's just like great at everything. Any kind of team. Just like amazing at it. And you just kind of sit back and you wonder, how in the world did they do that? You know, I've, whether you're looking at a field or a baseball diamond or whether you're looking at a court, whatever it is, you're like, how did this person go from here to here before I got from here to here? And you like, you see, I don't understand that at all. It's like they did something that to me is unfathomable. Look at what they just did. Can you believe what they... But, but, but a good team looks at all the different person, all the different personnel, and they say, "Look, we don't expect you to do what that person's doing. We expect you to do what you're capable of doing, what you're supposed to be doing." Now, the kingdom of God is like that. The church is like that. Christian people are like that. I don't expect you to be something that you're not, but I do expect you to be accountable to do well with whatever it is you've been given by God to manage according to your ability, according to your ability. But whether you've been given a lot to manage or whether sometimes it seems just very satisfyingly small, you will be held accountable for how you do. This is a very common theme throughout the Bible. It's repeated to us over and over again. I want to give you just uh, four or five scripture references here so that you know I'm not speaking out of nowhere here. This is Jesus in John chapter 14 when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Many people would make their relationship to God all about love. Well, I love God and God loves me. Are you a Christian? Yes, I love Jesus. Yes, I love God. Well, this is from Jesus himself. If you love me, keep my commandments. Okay, here's another one. Again, Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And you find people do this. I'm a Christian. I'm, to say I'm a Christian is to say Jesus is, is my Lord. Christ is my Lord. I am a Christian. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And he asked the people in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Hmm. I think I would have shivered, you know, at that. Like, huh. John 14, verse 23 and 24, later in the same chapter that we previously read, Jesus again speaking to the crowd who are clearly struggling with this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Okay? Again, these are all from the Lord Jesus' mouth. Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're talking about today, the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And again, in Luke eleven twenty eight, of course, you hear people say, I just, I'm so blessed by God. I'm so blessed by God. I'm so blessed by God. And they repeat it as a refrain, as if saying those words is going to magically make their life okay with God. But, but here in Luke 11, Jesus says, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, this is very countercultural. This is not in line with what our culture likes to believe. One uh, very famous celebrity who I won't name, but who you would recognize if I did, uh, had this quote. He said, I am a Buddhist, I am a Muslim, and I am a Christian. It all comes down to the same thing. You're in a loving place 
or you're in an unloving place. And that's a very worldly sentiment. You know, I can evaluate my position with God based on my feelings. Am I a loving person or am I not a loving person? Um, well, there's a sense, I guess, in which that's true if you're loving according to the commands and instructions of Jesus Christ. But you don't get to define what that is. And you're not a Christian apart from obeying Jesus' commands. Jesus is calling disciples, folks. In other words, we might say he is calling learners, not merely lovers. Learners, not merely lovers. Um, received this from a member. I don't normally put things like this up on the screen, but I did. I received this from a member. Fiddle turn. There we go. Okay. Sunday, you get a message from a member. That sermon was exactly what I needed. And then Tuesday, maybe you've been in this, you know. What was the sermon about again? What was that? I don't know if you've ever experienced that or not. This was meant, I think, as an encouragement to me. It did not have the desired effect. <laughs> say, well, hold on now. But we recognize the validity of something like this. There's a reason why we gather together on Sundays and we open God's Word to hear from God's Word week after week after week. Because we have positioned ourselves as learners of God disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we have to be reminded, we have to be told, we have to be instructed. The Spirit of God is applying to our lives. There's a reason why we try to meet during the middle of the week, to be reminded of these things. Because we are disciples. We're not, we're not the Master. We are learners from the Master. And I'm not the Master. God's Word carries the authority of the Master. So we meet together and we open God's Word all right, that's point number two. We're expected to obey God. You know, this is, this is a stewardship that we have. Here's point number three. God causes the increase. You notice in the story, it says that the guys who had five talents and two talents, they experienced an increase. And you might find yourself saying, okay, so if I am a Christian, I've got to find a way to really be productive. I've got to find a way to produce. And I could understand that sentiment. That's how we think about a lot of things in life, Right? If I'm a good employee, I have, to, I have to make something, I have to do something, I have to increase something, i got to do a good job here. But in the Bible, we're told that we're supposed to be working hard, doing the kind of work that we're supposed to be doing, and God will grant the increase. Here is Paul explaining this in 1 Corinthians 3. I actually covered this last week. I was sitting down with a young man at the dinner that we had after church, and we came directly to this passage. He didn't know it was in my notes. I was supposed to preach it. I was just too slow to get there. But we actually covered this because he wanted to understand this idea about apostles and the greatness of men and the greatness of people. But look at what, look at what Paul says here. He says, I planted, talking about coming to Corinth and sharing the gospel. Apollos, another guy came along and he watered. He shared the gospel some more and taught and gave instruction. But God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. There's not one above the other, one greater than the other. They're all just stewards trying to do well with what God's given them to manage. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's what we saw in the parable, right? There's no difference between the guy with five and the guy with two. They both worked hard. They both saw an increase. But here we find God is the one producing. They'll each receive a reward. I can preach this sermon to you, but I cannot bring about any sort of change in your life. I can't do that. The sermon, if you will, is the work. It's the, it's the labor. But I can't, I can't do anything 
anything with it. Um, about two years before um, I became a pastor, I was at a, a conference, and I went to it as a Bible conference, and a very well-known uh, pastor was standing up, and he was speaking. He was given the main address, and he gave the address, and, and it was called, the title of the sermon was A Theology of Sleep, which is very catching, because I had never heard of the theology of sleep before, but he actually turned to a, to a parable, and it, it was a very simple parable, and so you're going to get a two-for-one this morning. I'm going to put it up on the screen. If you want to turn to it, it's Mark chapter 4. You may not have even known this is a parable, but it is. Um, Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. It's told after the parable of the sower, but it's different. It's not the same thing. Instead, in Mark chapter 4, verses 26, we read this from Jesus. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. You ever done that? Ever gone, gone out in the backyard to sow some grass or plant something in the dirt? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I hated that stuff when I was a kid. Started doing it as an adult. First out of obligation, then interest. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like somebody who goes and scatters seed. Now, you've probably heard that before in the parable of the sower. But, but, this has a different meaning. So don't fall asleep. It says, he scatters seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day. I'm very accustomed with that. And the seed should sprout and grow. Yep, I've experienced that too. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens immediately, he puts in a sickle because the harvest has come. In other words, the kingdom of God is like people who are going out scattering the word of God and they're working, but they don't control. They, then what do they They go to sleep. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you hear these kind of mystical representations of these things. It's like something out of a Disney movie where someone plants something in the ground and then they sing to the plant, you know, and they, fa la 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 grow please, or whatever, you know, or, or they put their hands on something magical and mystical happens or whatever. That's not how anybody grows things. You put it in the ground. You try to make sure it has some water. That's what Paul says. One plants and one waters. You know, I scattered the seed. Apollos came along and he spoke to you. And that's like somebody watering what I planted there. But you, but you do that. You don't do anything to cause the thing to grow. It just happens. What do you do? You go to sleep. And you wake up and you look outside. I wonder, is there anything out there yet? And my wife always tells me, it's too soon. You have to, there's nothing out there yet. You know, I'm going to go look in the garden. Yes, yeah, there's not going to be anything. You know, it's, the package says three weeks. It's not going to be out there. But you go and you're like, yeah, yeah, nothing's there. You ever done that before? Or you go out and you say, oh, something's there. And it's like, it's way too soon. It's not what you, it's, that's not what you planted. Pull that out. You, you understand this. Jesus is saying, that's what working for the Lord is like. You're doing your part. You're working hard. You're doing the things you're supposed to do. You're hoping. You're praying. But you're mostly waiting because you can't cause the thing to change or to grow or anything else. And he preached this and it was so, it was so relieving because, because as a Christian and perhaps you've gotten caught in this trap, you can get caught up in doing the work of the kingdom of God and then getting discouraged when you don't see the results that you want to see. And you ask yourself, well, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Maybe we need some great new innovation. Or maybe we're doing it all wrong. Or maybe we should look at how they're doing it over there. Or whatever it is. And it's all misplaced faith because we want to believe that if we do something, then we will automatically get something. But that's not how God works. Now, should we be concerned about doing the right thing? Yes. Should we try to do it wisely? Yes. But ultimately, I can't save a single person. 
I can't. Uh, we had a Sunday school lesson last week and uh, over there with the youth in a Sunday school class, high school youth. And I, you know, asked them about the various things they were engaged in their life right now. And they gave me, and I said, you know, have, have you ever considered, this was, maybe it was two weeks ago, it was before the invite a friend, have you considered inviting someone to church from this, from this team or this thing or this group or whatever? And it was just kind of silence. You know, in the silence I understood. Because in the back of their minds they thought, yeah, I should probably do that kind of thing. But do you know what kept them to a person from doing it? I don't think, they, I don't think it's going to make a difference. I don't think they're going to come, or I don't think they're going to listen, or I don't think they're going to be, a, you know, I don't, I, and you, you know what, I, I had to be honest in a moment, and I had to say, you're probably right. <laughs> you're, you're probably right. Do you know how many times, as a Christian, I have shared the gospel, and it seems, for all the world, that absolutely nothing has happened? The overwhelming majority, in fact, I could say, I, have pro- I probably count on one hand if I really sat down and think about it, the times when I have shared the gospel with someone and there was any kind of faithful response at all. But is that what the Bible says I should expect to see as a laborer for Jesus Christ? I share the gospel and then I look out the window and look, there's a whole plant! Is that what I'm, no, that's not what I'm told. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to be planting seed, watering. I'm supposed to be speaking of the kingdom. I'm supposed to be living righteously as the Lord Jesus commanded me, the best of my living repentantly when I fail. I'm supposed to be encouraging others and worshiping God and praying and hoping for all things. And someday, I'm going to look out the window and there's going to be something that has grown. And I can tell you, after 12-ish years of pastoral ministry, after a couple of decades of being a Christian, just trying to faithfully do one thing Right, obedient, after the other. That's how it actually happens. That's how it happens. You look up and you see, over the course of a very long time, something there that was not there when you began to speak to this person or when you began to reach out to this person. That's what it's like. But it is very discouraging, isn't it? When you don't see anything right away. We're not going to get to the fourth point. We say three today. Sorry. Which is a real dilemma for me because I don't think I have enough in the fourth point for an entire sermon. So I got to go back to the drawing board this week, but that's okay. Don't feel sorry for me. I'll figure it out. As Christian people, we will not speak and live the way that we should if we have any sense that the profitability of what we're doing depends on us. Um, we'll be discouraged. You'll look at the, the person that you, that you um, go to school with or that you go to work with, and you'll look at their life, and you'll just do an honest evaluation. Like, you'll say, look, I go to church on... I know I'm not a perfect person. I go to church on Sunday. I look at the Bible as God's Word. You know, I pray. I try to serve the Lord. I try to be the, the husband or the father that God's called me to be, but I'm looking at this person, and I'm, I can just tell. This person has no sensitivity to any of that whatsoever. And let's be honest, you're probably right. You're probably right. But the work of God has got to start somewhere. (laughs) It's got to start somewhere. Lives don't change because we go from being hard-hearted, rebellious sinners with no sensitivity to what God has commanded, and someone gives us one really good speech, and all of a sudden we're a completely different person. I, I don't see that. I mean, not very often. I don't see that. 
More often than not, it's like this. I work and I pray and I hope. Do you know how many times I've, done, I've gone through this process in someone's life and there's just like no positive response? And frankly, it seems to end badly. Maybe they come to church for a while and then they just disappear, part of, not a part of my life anymore whatsoever. And you think, man, should I have done something different? Should I, maybe this or maybe that? And then I look up years later and they are faithfully serving the Lord in a different city, in a different place, in a different church. And... And as a person, I have to say, I didn't do that. But I'm grateful that, that God used me to have some part in that person's very early experience with what it meant to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Maybe not even a, per, a part that that person would remember or recognize. But I know that I did the right thing and that I labored the right way and that I, my heart was in the right place. And look at what God's doing in their life now. And this is what Paul means when he says, look, the guy who plants, the guy who waters... Or the guy who sticks in the, the sickle and reaps the harvest at the end. They're all one. It's all the same thing. Because it's God who gives the increase. And this is, this is, the, this is the part of it. Sorry, I just figured out what I need to preach on next week. But I'm going to put that thought aside for a second. This is, this is the part of it, okay? That, that as Christians we ought to be grateful for. Is that we are invited into any part of this whatsoever. Like, what are you going to do with your life that's so great over the next 20 years that it's going to compare to playing some small part in someone spending eternity in the kingdom of heaven as opposed to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? I mean, I look around and, and there, are like, there are excavators and there are, are, are dairy guys. and there, I mean, there's all different kinds of people here, right? But what are you going to do over the next 10, 20? What do you have better to do than this? Now, the third servant in that parable had an answer for that, didn't he? He said, I see this as an opportunity to get away with doing nothing. And if that's your answer, you are revealing you are not actually a disciple of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you are not actually a Christian who can call Jesus Lord. You're not living obediently to Him. From His mouth, not mine. But if you're sensitive to this at all, if you want to live by faith at all, then what you have to do as a believer is say, Lord, here's the next 2, 3, 10, 20 years of my life. Help me day in and day out to be faithful to you. Teach me through your word as I come on Sundays, as I come on Wednesdays. Help me to grow in my faith and understanding and use me in hard, beaten down, dusty, barren, cracked soil. Use me to begin to breathe life of the kingdom of God into the people around me. Use me in some small way. And if that means some temporary rejection, then I'll, I'll, endure, I'll endure that. If that means that somebody who I used to sit with at lunch doesn't want to be around me anymore, then I guess I'll live through that too. If that means a guy's not going to return my text messages anymore, okay, I can live with that too. But use me, Lord, for some reason to be faithful to your kingdom. Help me say true things about Jesus. Help me to be the kind of light and darkness that exemplifies this is how a servant of Jesus Christ lives. Help me to be faithful to you and repentant when I sin. Use my life to make a difference so that one day when I wake up in the morning, I'll be able to look outside and see that you did something that I was incapable of doing. And I got to play some part in that, some role in that. I, I'm not sure just standing here today that there is a better motivation or a more real motivation than that. And if that doesn't speak to you on any level, then I think you're looking at your life the wrong way. I, I really do. 
God has invited you to come be a part of all this. Even promised to reward you in all this labor. Promised to reward you in all this labor. And if you are like the guy who just goes and buries this responsibility in the ground, says, now nah, I'm going to live the way that I want to live and do the things that I want to do and wake up every day thinking about, hey, how am I going to approach today? I know that's not how you feel because you're going to work. or you, you, I get that. But spiritually speaking, when it comes to obeying the Lord and doing the things He's commanded you, if you're not going to do these things, if you're not going to make the effort, if you're not going to live faithfully to these things, then you're saying an awful lot about who you are and who you aren't before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the warning of the parable on that front. It's a tough uh, morning for me. Um, I appreciate Casey's enthusiasm when he stands up here and tries to encourage us to be happy before the Lord, but um, don't be a fool in thinking that when we come here, everybody is just happy. That's certainly not true of me. I don't think it's true of Casey either. I'm not going to condemn him for trying to stir up happiness and joy in the Lord because I find myself having to do that exact same thing. I just get here earlier than most of you. And I get here, and I'm not always happy. And sometimes you get very bad news or very discouraging information. Sometimes there's no sleep involved. Sometimes there are worries and obstacles that are real, that are inescapable, that you cannot evade. And you come here as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and you're called to worship. But undoubtedly, when I humbly come before the Lord on Sunday morning, I say, Father... Help me to worship you well. Undoubtedly, the words that we sing in songs, they start to speak to my soul. Songs that I have to sing in the choir, like, how can I keep from singing because of how great you are and what you've done for me in Jesus Christ? I'm asking myself that question. I'm not saying, how, how can you? It's how can I keep from singing? Because if God has been good to me to do all of this, How can I sit here and rob him of praise and glory and gratitude? How can I do that? And I read from Psalm 32. I'm not reading that call to worship for you. I'm reading that for my own soul. Happy, blessed is the man whose sins are totally forgiven. Maybe your happiness is like happy is the man who who the bank forgave all of his debts. Or happy is the man you know, who married the right woman. Or happy is the man who, who his business is going well or whatever it is. But that's not what the Bible says. And I have to tell my soul that because otherwise fleshly, carnal, worldly, sinful Reggie starts to think those things. Boy, happy I would be if this. And happy I would be if this. And I can't be happy now because of this. But that's not what God says to me. Sometimes I feel happy on Sunday mornings. And other times I have to come here and I have to read. And I have to pray. And I have to sing. And I have to tell myself, be happy in the Lord. That's what today was like for me. So I'm going to go out from this place and I'm going to try to do the work of the Lord. Whether I think it's going to make a bit of difference in somebody's life or not. By the way, I have one of those right after the service today. I'm going to go try to talk to somebody. And in my heart of hearts, it looks as hopeless and as bleak as it could be. I'm going to go do it anyway. Do you know why? Because I am a worker of the Lord Jesus Christ and this is the work that I'm supposed to do and by golly, I'm going to go do it. 
and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to hope that one day I wake up and I look outside and I see the work of God accomplished in somebody's life. That's what I'm going to do. And don't think that your job is any different. It may be at a different magnitude. It may be this many talents instead of this many talents, but the work is the same. We share the gospel. We live the gospel. We declare the gospel. We call people to repentance and faith in Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, um, I pray that you'll give us a sense of joy when we consider the work that's before us. Even if the work itself is not always joyful, I pray, Father, that we'll look beyond the work itself and see to the joy beyond it as Jesus did when we're told that it was for the joy that was before him that he went to the cross. I'm not going to a cross this afternoon, Father. And to the best of my knowledge, that people in the sanctuary are also not going to any sort of execution of their own over the next week. And if, if your son can go to the cross for the joy that's before him, then Father, spur us to live our lives in obedience to your word, faithfully sharing the gospel and being a light in darkness for the joy that is ahead of us. Even if we experience no full realization of that joy until we die and stand before you to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. For that joy that is coming, help us to be faithful. Or else our work becomes meaningless and our faith becomes empty. God forbid. Thank you for our time together gathered around your word. I pray, Father, that your spirit will work in the lives of those who have heard. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.